Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. It is my joy to be here today. And students, faculty, staff, and Mr. President, it is my honor to be here. I always love to come here and speak at Southeastern. I do love this school. I've sent several students here. Uh, there's several in here today from my last church where I uh, pastored before I went over to the dark side of denominational service. But uh, always love to send students to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I'm not bragging but I, because I'm not going to tell you how much, but I do personally support financially this school also. I don't even know if you know that, Dr. Aiken, but I do and uh, will continue to because I believe in Dr. Aiken and Charlotte and I believe in this school and I'm thankful. I pastored in this state. I grew up in this state. And to be honest with you, when I considered seminary, I could not consider this school in all honesty. Uh, but I sure know where I would have gone now. And I'm thankful for what God has done in this school through many people who've come before Dr. Aiken, but what he has continued. And so it's an honor to be here. Yes, I'm president of the executive committee, chief executive officer, whatever, whatever. That's somewhat of a pompous title. I like to call myself the chief encouraging officer of the Southern Baptist Convention. I like to encourage people. And yes, I do ask for them to do more. More, more. It's my goal, my hope, that we'll raise the funds so significantly that we will never again have to pull people off a mission field. That is unconscionable to me. And I want to see us raise that number by thousands and thousands. I want us to be able to see our church planning efforts funded at a level more than we ever have. And I want to see theological education costs decrease so that when you leave, you will never have to pay back a debt so that you can go immediately to a church, to the mission field, to a church plant, wherever it is. That's my goal. And I encourage people to do more. And I want you to know a couple of quick things. The executive committee, we've twice lowered our cooperative program allocation. We're the only organization that's ever done anything like that. And we've sent it straight to the IMB because we want to see more go to reach the nations for Christ. So when we ask for more, it doesn't come to us because we keep less than ever before. Gladly, purposefully, because we want to see missions and ministries across the land at a greater level than ever before. So be encouraged by that, please. Also, I want to say a word of encouragement because I get a front row seat to see where God is working all over the world, and I'm so thankful. Your president and his wife travel a great deal. I do as well. I'll be with my wife in Germany next month. God's doing a great work, particularly among a group of Russian-German people. There are millions of Russian-German ethnic people in Germany, and they're on fire for the Lord. Over eight of their churches run over a thousand, which is unheard of in Germany. Last month I was, no, in June I was in with my wife in Spain and spoke at the Primera Iglesia Bautista de Madrid, España, and also at the graduation of our largest seminary, the First Baptist Church of Madrid, Spain. 
and at the largest seminary there. God's doing a great work in that country that needs the gospel so dearly. Last December, I was in Cuba, one of the greatest trips of my life. You know, communism took over in the early 60s and declared they would destroy Christianity. And one of the ways they would do so is by forbidding the building of any church house, church building of any kind. So guess what? They began planting churches in their homes. Now there are thousands and thousands of house churches all over the whole island. It's changing the persona and perception of all the people. I mean, God is doing a revival work there of biblical proportions. May a year ago, I was in the most unevangelized city in North America. It is Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I don't think it's going to be unevangelized long. I met with 21 young French Canadian church planners who were on fire for the Lord. One young man who sat to my left at supper time, the name of his church, La Chapelle, or the chapel, one year old, ran over 700, baptized 70 people in their first year of existence. I said, Son, that doesn't happen in Atlanta, Georgia. He said, it's happening here because the people are so devoid of the gospel, they'll listen to you and they will respond quickly to the gospel. Primarily college students, but over 700 in first year. God's doing a great work. And I praise his name and I get to see that. And I thank you for the privilege of being able to see that. God bless you, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. God bless you. Well, today I've come to preach, not to talk about denominational things, and yes, I've already received one kiss, by the way. Your wonderful president, who stuck his tongue out at me a while ago, told his class that somebody ought to kiss me on the cheek. Well, that's already done happen. Not by a woman, either. <laughs> I appreciate that so much, Dr. Aiken. Thank you so much. I can take it. I can handle it. So if any of you want to line up, I, that's fine. <laughs> you see, you've made me lose my train of thought. I did... <laughs> Oh, yeah, it was about the cooperative program. And I, <laughs> I want to just say this one more thing about the cooperative program. Uh, I supported it before I was ever paid by it. And the churches I have pastored love to give through the cooperative program. I just want to say this because you're young and you've heard of the cooperative program, but you may have also thought, well, I'm not so sure about it. I just challenge you to study it. I ask no one to give through the cooperative program. We don't give to it. We give to missions and ministries through it, as my friend Rick Lance in Alabama says. I challenge you to study it. And if at the end of the day, you find it to be the most efficient and effective way to support missions and ministries, support it. If you don't, don't. But I just challenge you to study it. I'm willing to compete in the marketplace in any way, shape, form, or fashion. God is doing some great things. Does it need some tweaking and changing? Well, I think it does. And as you get involved and get in a position of influence, you can help make those changes. I've been a part of those changes since I was a pastor too. But I still believe it's the most efficient and effective way to do the work of the Lord. So I encourage you with those words. Now, we're in a time in our culture, in our season of life, as we know, we're in a presidential election time. Some years ago, in 2006, I was pastor of a very large church in Taylor, South Carolina. And we have some members of that church right here. My wife's nephew is here. Our church, because of, of where it was, South Carolina has the first primary in the South. All the presidential candidates came through. 
And many of them came to see me, not only because I was pastor of that church, but because at that time I had just been elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And some of you don't even know what the difference in what I do in the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, most people don't know the difference. One is an elected, believe me, non-paid two-year position. And the one I'm in, praise God, is paid and somewhat permanent, if anything is permanent in this world. But, so I had a lot of people come to me. And there was one candidate that came to me and wanted to seek my endorsement, which I did not give, would not give, still would not. I won't tell you his name, but it rhymes with McCain, and he's from Arizona. But anyway, we had a wonderful time. And at the end of the time together, he said, Dr. Page, he said, do you have any questions for me? I said, yes, Senator, I have one, one only. It's a very important one. I just want to know, Senator McCain, who owns your soul? I don't think he'd ever been asked that question quite that way before. So he danced a little bit, as many politicians have learned to do well. Who owns your soul? Well, I don't need to go into all the answer of that. It was less than uh, pleasing to me. But who owns your soul? I believe that's a question that must be answered by everyone. I believe it is the question that's the heart of what I want to talk about today, and that is worship. I planned on preaching about something else, but God led me this morning to, to change to this. Worship, when that question is answered aright, is when worship begins to occur. You'll be going into the mission field. You'll be going into the pastorate. You'll be going into church planning. You'll be going into all kinds of church-related vocations. And I pray that you will come to understand that the key of everything you do ought to be to point people to worship. Whether it's evangelism, soul winning, whatever you want to call it. Most people don't call it that anymore. But whatever you want to do in missions and evangelism, it ought always be to point people to a worship of the Almighty God. The passage we're going to study this morning is one of my favorite in all the Word. And people laugh at me when I say that because, yes, I say that about every passage. But Isaiah 6 is that quintessentially famous passage on worship. And I want to spend just a few moments tonight, to, this morning, talking about worship. Now, you got to wonder, you, you reckon when Jesus and his disciples were walking around the Galilean foothills, did they argue about worship style? Have you ever thought about that? I do travel a lot. I mean, let me tell you, in this past week, I was in northern Missouri. I was in Illinois. I was in West Virginia. I was in Kentucky. Oh, we got one hilltopper here. I was in Kentucky. I was, yes, I even think I was home a little bit in Nashville. And I travel a great deal, and people are still arguing about worship styles. It's actually, as my friend Shrek says, redonkulous. But people still argue about it. I wonder if Jesus and his disciples did. You know, I wonder if they argued about whether it was appropriate to use Galilean gospel or Capernaum contemporary or Tiberian traditional or Judean jazz. I wonder if they argued about those silly things. I have a feeling they didn't. Because you see, another of my favorite passages in John 4, we won't go there just yet. Jesus teaches another powerful lesson about worship, and I try to tell people when I preach on that passage, everybody's got an opinion, and it's okay to have your opinion. But God doesn't care about your opinion. He does not care about my opinion, even though mine is right. <laughs> what matters is who you worship. 
And what matters is that you worship him as he told the woman at the well, in spirit and in truth, honestly and spiritually. That's what matters. Doesn't matter really where, doesn't matter what you wear. What matters is who and how. And this powerful passage tells us more about the who and the how. The who and the how. You see, one of the greatest needs we have is to worship the Lord aright. Look with me quickly to to Isaiah chapter 6. It's it's just such a famous passage, but I hope you'll hear it with new ears and new eyes and see it with new eyes. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted or high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they did cover their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out one to another. What were they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. The sound of their voices, what happened? The doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Now stop right there. When's the last time I ha- when's the last time that happened in one of your worship services? You may say, "Well, never." But something like that ought to happen every day you go into the Lord's house. You see, worship is all about experiencing just a little bit of heaven on this earth. And that draws people into the kingdom. That encourages people to a love for the Lord when they sense a worship that's real and right. Well, he says in verse 5, Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined. We'll come back to why in just a moment. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken from the tongs of the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched my lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isn't that what you want to happen every time you rise off your knees in your daily prayer time? Isn't that what you want to happen when you come before the Lord in corporate worship? You hear that sweet voice in the Lord saying, You're forgiven, child. Your sin is atoned for, your guilt is taken away. And then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me, Lord. Oh, my friends, we want to understand worship in you today. Four quick things. I think, first of all, I see the element of contemplation or meditation. Isaiah goes to church. Now, many scholars will tell you that it seems that he was in the regular habit of so doing. And he goes into the temple, and there he recognizes something very real. When did it happen? The Bible says it happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, if you study Isaiah any at all, you will recognize that he had a little bit of hero worship going on with King Uzziah. And if you study your Old Testament properly, which you sure should, You will know that King Uzziah began his reign as a good and faithful king, did many good things. But toward the end of his reign, something began to change inside of him. Never lower your guard. Never stop your personal and corporate worship the Lord aright. Because if you do, you can become a king Saul, you can become like Solomon, or you can become like Uzziah. And toward the end of his life, he 
developed what some scholars call an easy familiarity with God. And he began thinking, you know, it really is about me. It really is about me. And all my friends, we can get into that habit and think it's about us. I wake up every day and think, oh God, don't let me believe what that small group of people say about me. Because I know me. And I know I'm not even worthy to be in your presence, my Father. But you see, we can begin to think it's all about us. And Uzziah did. You know that in those days there was a temple. And the temple had a very inner part called the Holy of Holies, separated by a curtain from the holy place. And you know, don't you, that the high priest who was supposed to be a lifetime high priest in Jesus' day to become a bought and sold position yearly, but it was supposed to be a lifelong position and the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one day a year. It's not scriptural. Jewish tradition is they tied a rope around his leg in case he had a spell and died that they'd pull him out because nobody going to go in and get him. That's not scriptural. I hope you know that, but that's what some say. Uzziah said, well, you know, since it's all about me, I can go in. And so he entered into the Holy of Holies. And you know what happened, don't you? He was stricken with leprosy and lived in quarantine the rest of his life and finally died an ignoble death. In the year that Uzziah died, Isaiah goes to the temple. And experience something he'd never experienced before. And look at the scripture and see what happened. This man walks into that temple experience with a sense of fear and uncertainty. And experience one of the most strange times of his life. He sees a vision of God. In dramatic language, in his inward eye, he sees God seated on the throne. Recognize the throne of Israel was empty, but he sees the throne of God. He is not empty. And we need to always remember that as we think about politics in our 21st century world. Our God is still on the throne. And Isaiah saw this. And in deeply dramatic language, he recognizes that the divine king is still in control. And he sees that his robes fill the temple. He sees the attendance under the Lord God Almighty. It is a powerful experience, so much so that the entire place shakes with the presence of God. And the smoke fills the temple. He did not go to church that day to have a delightful snooze, to have a time of fellowship with his friends. He came to see God, and he was not disappointed. My friends, as we contemplate this, we need to recognize that what we're all about is bringing people into the throne of room of God. It is to bring people every Sunday and our own time every day when we're personally worshiping and saying, I want to be in the presence of the Lord. And it should be that dramatic where we sense his power and the smoke fills our hearts and the shaking fills our souls. And we become aware that our God is on the throne. Oh, my friends, you're going to go into places of ministry and you're going to wonder, is God here? Oh, yes, he is. You're going to wonder, has he left me? Does he know my name? Yes, he does. Yes, he's here. 
please always remember what Isaiah found is true. We see him contemplating. But a second quick element, we see also confession. Recognize the conviction of sin before the entranced eye of Isaiah. He sees these angelic forms. And look at verse 2. He saw fire and he heard the seraphim song. The pillars shake and the places fill with smoke. And in holy awe, he recognizes the power of the Lord. But he also recognizes his own sin. The seraphim have six wings, these somewhat quasi-angelic creatures. And with two, they did cover their face. Why? Look at God and live. But with two, they did cover their feet. Why? Because a symbol of the, the feet is a symbol of sin because it touches the dirty ground. So with two, they covered their feet. They didn't want sin to be in the presence of God. So they covered their feet and they covered their eyes. And with two, they did fly. And in this process, Isaiah becomes vividly conscious of his own sinfulness. And he realizes, I'm no better than Uzziah was. In fact, I'm no better than anybody. And so we see an honest confession as he recognizes his unworthiness to stand before the Lord God Almighty. Now, you must recognize with me that Isaiah feared the worst, and we should too. What worst? Well, his hero. When he went into the presence of the Lord, what happened to him? God killed him. So here I am standing, able to see the Lord, at least in, this, in, in the inner eye and in, in my time of worship. I, I see the Lord seated and high and lifted up on this throne. And if, if King Uzziah died, what do you think is going to happen to me? I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. Because I'm a sinner and I'm standing in front of God. There was an honest confession because there was a need for confession. And so he says, I am a ruined man. Woe, woe is me. I'm a sinner, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Oh, listen, my friends, I've been dealing with a certain list that came out. CNN has been wearing me out this past week, wanting to do a story on fallen pastors and looking especially for fallen denominational leaders. One friend called me and said, Frank, do you want to know if your name's on the list? I said, well, I already know it's not on the list. And then he said, well, no, you don't know that. It's not, by the way. But he said, there are names on there that were used pseudonymously, so there are some names on there that are innocent names. And it's just a miracle that somebody didn't put somebody's, uh, some well-known denominational names on there is using for their own. Let me tell you something, friends. Whether you're on that list or not, you're on a list, and that's the list of sinners. And I'm at the chief of that list. You see, the Bible tells us that we need to recognize our sin. We need to be honest and open before our Lord and say, Father, I am undone. I do not deserve to be in your presence. And the need for confession brought Isaiah to his knees. But praise God, the third element that I see here is not only contemplation or meditation, not only is it confession, but it's cleansing. I mean, look at the text. Isn't it beautiful in 6 and 7 as it reveals God's eagerness to forgive us of our sins? That we do not have to go about with unresolved guilt and sin in our lives. That he comes and he forgives. 
In this beautifully dramatic way, he recognizes this when he sees the work of the seraphim bringing that symbolic coal from the altar and touching him and removing his guilt and atoning for his sins. And we living on this side of the cross can say, thank you, Jesus, that you did that for me. Thank you, Jesus, that you did that for me. For our God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. John 3, 17. God is eager to forgive. Even though there is an agony of uncleanness, God reveals himself as a God who is willing to touch, to cleanse, to take away our sin. And every morning when you worship our Father, and every Sunday morning when you lead in corporate worship, there needs to be that beautiful removal of sin from your life. Father, I come before you, a dirty man, an unclean man, and I want to leave this place clean. Your sin is atoned for and your guilt is removed. Oh, praise the name of the Lord. Because his forgiveness is free, it's full, it is forever. When God forgives, God takes that sin away. But fourth and last and most important, perhaps, is this last element of worship. And it is commitment to the call. If worship occurs and there is no change, then worship did not occur. Newsflash. If in your leading in a service and there's nothing ever happened, something's bad wrong, isn't it? I was preaching the same message last week. Brother Danny, I've never really seen anything like this. I was in, I had, where I went was in one of the most rural, remote areas in the heartland of our country. I mean, you, you just can't get there from here. I had to take, I was in, did I tell you, West Virginia? Cold, hold on, son. I was in West Virginia. And, and that was a great place. Yes, sir, it was. You thought I was going to talk about rural there. Well, I, I took three flights, including a commuter plane that held eight people to get to this place in Quincy, Illinois. And then I had to go across the river down into in the middle of northern Missouri. And it truly was one of the most rural places I've ever seen. And I preached this message. And again, I don't know why I preached it. Because it was an associational meeting. And those are not known as the most vibrant meetings the world has ever known. Do you know what I mean? Some of you have never been to one. Bless you. <laughs> so I preached this message. And after it's over, a teenage boy comes up to me and said, Dr. Page, can I talk to you? I said, well, sure, son. Can, you, can we talk over here where it's a little quieter, okay? He said, Dr. Page, he said, I want you to know. I was baptized years ago, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I gave my life to Christ tonight, Dr. Page. I'm changed. Son, I prayed with him. I encouraged him. He said, can we write each other? I said, boy, here's my card. You write me and I'll write you right back, son. And a young pastor, didn't know any better, had brought two lost people to the associational meeting. He writes me before I go to bed that night. He said, Dr. Page, you need to know those people were deeply touched by God's word. And they got out. I sat with them in their car and both of them gave their lives to Christ tonight. Oh, my friends, worship ought always to lead to a commitment. 
Worship ought to always lead to some change. It ought always lead to some calling forth. And what happened? God said, who's going to go? I need somebody to share the message. And Isaiah, I believe, meekly and mildly kind of raised his hand a little bit and said, I'll do it. I know I don't deserve it, but God, I'll go. And the prophetic profession of Isaiah took root that day. He became one of the greatest spokespersons for the Lord in all of Old Testament history. There comes a time where you have to say, Father, whatever you want, I'll do it. If it's to go to North America, I'll do it. If it's to go to San Diego, sign me up. If it's to go, as Dr. Aiken always points out, to the ends of the earth, where is it, Father, you want me to go? And I'll go. You set the marching orders, Father, and I will be your follower. Jim Henry is one of my great heroes of the faith, former pastor of First Baptist Orlando, I was watching, I was teaching my deacons how to deke. <laughs> they need to know. And we were watching a, uh, one of his video presentations. And I remember him saying every morning after I have my quiet time, I stand up and I salute and I say, Lord, this is Private Jim Henry, ready to do your work. Tell me what to do, Father. And I will do it. This is Private Jim Henry. There ought to be some kind of commitment that says, Father, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Whom will I send? Who will go for us? Here am I. Send me. Worship that does not have a commitment, that worship that does not involve a change, worship that does not involve confession, worship that does not involve cleansing is not worship. It's a waste of God's time and a waste of your time too. Oh, Lord, help us to be people who understand what worship is. It's a little bit of heaven on this earth. It's seeing the power of the Lord. It's seeing the presence of the Lord. It is recognizing what he wants to do in our lives. If we're to worship in spirit and in truth, our hearts, our minds, our souls will be committed, aware, and confess. Our hearts, our minds, our souls will experience a cleansing and forgiveness like, have, like we so desperately need. Who owns your soul? When that question is answered aright, then worship occurs. Pray with me. Father God, in Jesus' name, I thank you so much for this time together. I pray, Lord God, for every person in this place, that every one of us would understand how to worship and what it means, who it involves, and what it does. So, Father, right now, in Jesus' name, I pray that we would be all about worship. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work 
you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.